Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life, eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Please be seated. Um, I want to jump right in because this uh, parable is gigantic. uh, And it's the beginning of a series that we're going to do walking through the book of Luke. And so... um, we are, are digging into Luke's gospel. Uh, in particular, we are digging into uh, the passages in Luke's gospel that are not in any of the other gospels. Um, and so if you're familiar with the Bible or not, this is kind of the, the, the layout of the, the beginning of the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and Matthew and Mark and Luke are all very similar accounts of Jesus' ministry uh, from some different perspectives and written to different audiences. Uh, but amongst those three that are very similar and have a lot of, in common, Luke has a ton of content that's extra uh, and, and different than what is in Matthew and Mark. Uh, and so we're specifically going to look at, I think it's about 28 different passages or sections of Luke uh, that kind of fall under that grouping that are different than those that are in Matthew and Mark. And the reason we're doing this is, number one, to make it a little bit more bite-sized. Luke is giant, and to do the whole thing would take us like two and a half years. So it's going to make it more bite-sized. We'll get through it by Easter. Um, And then also, we want to kind of look at what is it that Luke does with the stories that he tells of Jesus that are unique and different than the ways that Matthew and Mark tell these stories. And why is it that he has these added stories? Um, and and can, can we trust them? Uh, what are they there for? Uh, what type of realities are highlighted in these stories? Um, and how, how can they pull us into a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what he did? Uh, and so what we'll see time and again in Luke's gospel is that we're seeing the stories of Jesus who was uh, pursuing the least and the lost and the broken. Um, and we'll find out again and again that Jesus is, is uh, kind of partnered or, or sitting alongside of or even uh, having dinner or fellowship with uh, people that he really shouldn't be, right? Sinners, uh, as Luke mentions and as the other gospel writers call them, people who were uh, kind of viewed by the larger religious community as those kind of outside of the community of God. Um, Luke also highlights some important groups of people. Uh, one is women, 
Uh, Luke spends a lot of time talking about the women that ministered with Jesus and that Jesus ministered to uh, and the way that Jesus particularly paid attention to women that other people would have ignored. Um, So that's a glorious reality that we see in Luke's gospel and the ministry of Jesus. Um, And also we see a lot of Luke talking about Gentiles uh, in the way that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel not only to God's people, the Israelites, but to those who were far off, to the Gentiles Um, again, who by the community of God were considered to be outside. Uh, And all of this is because Luke has kind of decided he's going to spend a a significant amount of time doing research and conducting one-on-one interviews and documenting an orderly account because he wants this guy named Theophilus, who's listed in the opening verses of Luke, uh, he wants him to be assured of the things that he's been taught. And so Luke, on some level, is kind of being assigned a task, and the reason he's taken the task is because he's a very well-educated man. He's actually a doctor, okay? So he has the tools and the capacity and the intellectual ability to dig into these stories, to do the, the work of seeking people out and interviewing them and documenting stuff in such a way that put, put together an orderly account for this guy, Mr. Theophilus, Right? And just in case you're wondering, the book of Acts is part two to the book of Luke. It's also written for Theophilus. And so this entire thing began to be written after the beginning of the church. So this is way post-Jesus. And Luke is going back and interviewing all these people to find out more about the work of Jesus. Um, So as we begin this series, uh, we're going to be talking about the extent of grace and how far-reaching the grace of God is through the work of Jesus. Uh, And we're going to start with the parables of Luke, uh, again, that are not in Matthew and Mark. And so today we're beginning with probably the most popular uh, or maybe the second most popular of all of these parables, and it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Raise your hand if you've heard this parable before. It's okay, you can do it. I'm not going to call on you. Pretty much all of us, all right? Let's do everything we can to suspend our current presuppositions about what this story is for. Okay, because some of our culture has taught us certain things about some of the parables of Jesus, and Jesus himself says about parables that they are given to those who believe to reveal the kingdom of God, but also that they are spoken in a way that can sometimes dim or, sh- or cloud out the truth of God's kingdom for those who don't believe. Okay, and so oftentimes in our culture that just kind of assumes belief in Christianity, but that's not really the truth of who we are, but there's an assumption that so many in our country and our land are Christians. There's an assumed way of teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus says, listen, I teach parables because for some people it hides the truth. And for others, it truly reveals the truth. So there is a way of, reve- of reading the parable of the Good Samaritan and getting it completely wrong and thinking we're getting it right because we're actually missing the kingdom of God. And so it's important for us to dig into that reality and see what's going on in this parable. So in order to do this, we need a ton of help because I'm a mess. Uh, you're almost as big of a mess. And we have minds that just spin and go crazy. And I know we all got super busy and burdened this last week. And we need to take the next bit of time here and just ask God, please help us to, to pull into this thing and to, to see you speak to our hearts. So let's pray to Jesus and ask him for that help this morning. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we are um, we're aware, we're cognizant, we understand the uh, realities of coming in a place like this, 
and opening your word. And we'll talk about it in a minute, God, but I just pray that so many of our um, of our experiences and kind of the, the, the atmosphere and the feeling uh, that we get when we, when we walk into this environment, that, uh, that you would help us to, to wade through that carefully and, and to set aside the things that would distract and alienate us um, and that we would be pulled into the place where we can actually hear uh, the, the greatest truth, your truth, your gospel, uh, through this parable uh, and through this, me, a, a fool of a man who stands to say, please, Jesus, work and move. Uh, set me aside as much as possible today and bring uh, your spirit to bear uh, in this moment so that we might uh, ultimately and beautifully hear from uh, your lips uh, what is good for us, what is right for us, uh, what is uh, a picture of your kingdom and, and what is the hope that we can have which is found um, only, only, only in Jesus uh, and not in us, and not in any man for that matter. Um, so we set our eyes, and we set our gaze on you. Uh, we need your help. Um, we have flesh, uh, we have skin and bones, and minds that wander, um, and uh, we just pray that you'd pull us in and help us to, uh, to be part of those who would see a parable, and uh, by your Holy Spirit be able to understand the, um, the kingdom of God through it. Um, this is a miraculous work, and it is not one we can do by ourselves, so we ask for your help this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this all begins with a test from someone who is called a lawyer. So if you look with me at Luke 10:25, this lawyer comes up and wants to put Jesus to a test. So who's the lawyer, right? Is he part of James, Jonathan, and Barclay Company? You know, is, what, what is he... Who does he represent? You know, is he a civic lawyer? Is he a criminal lawyer? No, he's a lawyer of the law, um, the law of God. Uh, and so in Jesus' day, there's a group of people that are kind of mentioned a lot by, by name, and they have labels in that community uh, as people who minister in the synagogue and, and, and kind of lead the religious life of, of the Jewish people. Uh, some of them are called Pharisees. Some of them are called Sadducees. Uh, some of them are called elders. Some of them are called scribes. And some of them are called lawyers. There's all these different groups of people. So lawyers and scribes are kind of the same thing. Uh, and, and their job in the community is to spend a ton of time looking at the scriptures and clarifying for the community what God's law is. Um, kind of writing down, hey guys, this is how we have to behave. Here's the things we have to do because God told us we have to do these things. Okay. Uh, now, a complicating factor of this in Jesus' day is that they didn't just have the law of Moses, right, which is found in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Bible. Um, they didn't just have that. They had an additional several hundred laws that they had piled on top of the law of Moses. Okay, And so this guy is probably an expert in the law of Moses, yes, but also an expert in those extra burdensome and additional laws that the community had developed over the years. Okay? And so at this time, there's a lot happening where Jesus is confronting these groups of people in the way that they have misappropriated the law of God. Okay? One of Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, you find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is clarifying for the people in the early days of his ministry, listen, there's people out here telling you this is what the law means, and I'm here to tell you actually they're wrong. Okay? And he points to several instances where the Pharisees or the scribes or the teachers of law at that time were missing the mark for what God was really revealing in his law. 
And so much of the work when we are in Luke and we see Jesus interacting with Pharisees or scribes or elders, much of the work that Jesus is doing is course correction for an entire community that's being led down a terrible path, following the law incorrectly, not even knowing what it's really there for. Okay, so every time we have one of these encounters with those groups of people, we're going to see Jesus push on the understanding of the law. And the reason this matters for us still today is because we live within laws. Okay, and this is a broad topic that we talk about a lot. We have, sometimes they're personal, sometimes they're communal, at times they're also religious. We have certain standards of performance that we decide to take on and think, okay, that is the right way to live. And if I just simply live rightly, then I'm good, right? Not just good with fellow man, but actually even good with God, so long as I keep my list, right? And we can argue all day long about these lists, but if we just simply evaluate ourselves by our own statements of what other people should do, we'll start to realize, my, my list is giant right? You should use your turn signal. It's just common sense. Everyone should use their turn signal. You get in the left lane, you should go 95 mi- uh, 75 miles an hour. That's just what you should do, right? When you're on a bike, you should be in the bike lane, not on the sidewalk, and you should pay attention to the lights, right? When you get a homework assignment, you should work diligently and get it done in time and not waste the professor's day. Like, there are things that we put on other people that everyone else should do, And in so proclaiming these, we have built for ourselves a law. We do this religiously. We do this familially. We do this culturally. We do this in particular cities or particular regions and in different countries. We have these different expectations. And so the law of the Israelites of that day that the scribe is dealing with and that Jesus is having to confront, the way that Jesus does that is important for us as we live under our own law. We need to understand this reality and how Jesus speaks to the heart in this situation. So this lawyer comes up, verse 25. He wants to put Jesus to the test. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus knows the guy reads the law. He says, what, what do you, how do you read it? And the lawyer answers, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So basically, this guy says the two most important commandments in all of the Old Testament, right? So Jesus gives him a little soft toss. The guy steps up and just right out of the park, gone, nailed it, absolutely. Law number one and law number two, he nails. He is absolutely correct. He basically summarizes the entire law with that short sentence. And what does Jesus say in verse 28? Yep. Good answer, buddy. You got it. That's the whole law. Right? You got to love God with everything in you. And you got to love your neighbors like crazy. That's it. That summarizes all of it. All of the hundreds of laws in Moses... All of the extra laws that this community has built, they all boil down to those two things. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, verse 29 is really important here. Wouldn't you think the guy would be like, cool, thanks Jesus, have a good day. You know, I mean like, he got it. He got it right. 
Him and Jesus agree. I'm good. Have a nice day. It's so interesting. And this is really important when we read the Gospels. And most of the time, it's really small. Okay? Verse 29. But he, it's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. When we read the Gospels, there are tiny little statements like this that reveal the depths of the hearts of those who are trying to figure out what Jesus is all about. Okay, There's statements like this about the Pharisees. There's statements like this about the disciples. There's statements like this about the Jews, about the Gentiles, about women and children, sinners and sick people. There are little statements like this in the Gospels and they create for us the need to expound on what is actually going on. So, so much of the entire reason for the parable of the Good Samaritan is because the heart seer, Jesus, whose eyes pierce through the soul and see everything on the inside of us. The reason for the parable is because Jesus sees the man desiring to justify himself. Okay? He sees it. So why didn't the guy say, cool, thanks, we agree, have a nice day? Why? Here's why. The man desired to justify himself. The weight of the law of just simply two commands, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. The weight of the law settled down on this man. Okay? He found out, whether he had found out yet or not, I'm not sure, he found out with his little test of Jesus that Jesus was actually speaking about the same law. Maybe some people said Jesus is teaching bad things, and he came in there and found out, oh, actually, he's teaching the right stuff. Right? But when Jesus said, yep, life is found in fulfilling this law. The weight of that law settled down on this man. And suddenly, the pressure popped the vein, and the man realized, I haven't done it. I haven't done it. So he asked the question, so who, who exactly is my neighbor, Jesus? I get it. Love God, love neighbor. Can you put some little neat, tidy descriptions around who my neighbor is, please? Can you help me define who that is? Because depending on your definition of who my neighbor is, I am either good or bad with this law. I'm either okay or I'm screwed. Right? He desired to justify himself. His inquiry of Jesus is a hope that Jesus will define for him who neighbor is the way he has defined who neighbor is. Okay? I gotta know, Jesus, all the people that I treat like neighbor, that's all you're talking about, right? <laughs> I need to know. Because listen, in this day and in this time, the lawyer's kind of understanding of religion would have neatly and specifically laid out a bunch more laws to help him get a grip on who neighbor was. 
Okay? That's what all of the extra laws in this community did. Because more than likely, unclean people wouldn't make his list of neighbor. He would have been able to excuse the particular groups of people who didn't fit nicely into the community. Probably children or foreigners would not be on his list of neighbors. People who skipped church wouldn't have made the list. I doubt that the poor were on his list as he built and constructed a list of neighbors. I'd be curious to see what he thought of women or black men or New Englanders or hipsters. He probably wouldn't have included Windows PC people or country music fans or the kind of people who wear socks with sandals or skateboarders as neighbors. Gotta know, did neighbors include folks who voted differently than him? That, that's not neighbor, right? Or maybe the people that fell into a different tax bracket could be eliminated or those that live on the other side of the tracks. Do our neighbors really have to include people that don't look like us or dress like us or act like us or read like us or cheer like us or speak like us or go to church like us or reason like us or see the world exactly the same way that we do? Did those people make the list, Jesus? Desiring to justify himself, the lawyer said, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Now, I know I've gone too far. I've started to meddle. But the issue here and the reason that he says, who's my neighbor, is because he has tried. And the only way he fills the law is if he leaves some people off the list. Surely, Jesus, you don't mean them. I need to agree. I need to find out. Do you agree? Now, on a deeper level, this man is seeking to find a way to stand before God as justified in his own behavior. Okay? Deep, deep, deep. Deep down inside, this man is seeking a platform of his own making that is strong enough for him to stand on and bear the weight of the law. He wants with everything in him, his culture is telling him he has to, with everything in him, be good enough by himself to attain a right standing before God and therefore inherit eternal life. It's I mean, it's all riding on this moment. Jesus is what I have done enough. We all ask the same question, right? And one of the points of the law that is completely missed by this lawyer and by everybody else who talks about the law is that if you decide I myself can stand up and fulfill the law, if you determine that to be the course, then you've got to stretch your arms out and embrace every single letter of the entire law. Right? If you're going to say, I'm due to live by it, then you've got to live by it all. James says that very clearly in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for whoever keeps the law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So Jesus, seeing in the heart 
of this man, knowing that he wants to justify himself, answers the simple question, who's my neighbor, with this complex and earth-shattering parable. Let's read it, verses 30 through 37. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, which is basically two full days of pay, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the lawyer said, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Okay, this story, culturally speaking, in Jesus' day and time, is a giant smack in the face to the religious culture, okay? First, the road from Jerusalem to Samaritan, Jericho, sorry, Samaritan Jericho, screwed up my head, was actually a very dangerous road. It was a steep road. It declined, okay? Whenever you read the Bible, we go up to Jerusalem. That's because Jerusalem was on a hill, so you go up to Jerusalem. So they were going down the hill to Jericho. There was a lot of shadows. There was a lot of scary places to go. Normally, it was a place where robbery happened. So this is kind of just like Jesus is like, hey, man, this happened. And the guys are like, yeah, that, that happens, right? And then Jesus introduces the scandal, right? The priest and the Levite who come by don't do a thing, okay? Notice Jesus says didn't not see them, right? He says intentionally went to the other side of the road and kept on moving, Okay? So this starts the slap in the face because these are the people who are exonerated in the community, right? A priest is somebody who is in the family uh, of Aaron who has been set for years to be those who basically serve in the church and in the temple and, and serve the people of God. They, they are the ones who bring sacrifice. They are the ones who administer the, the covenants. They, they're the ones who conduct all of the religious stuff, right? So these are people in very high view in the culture, and Jesus says the guy just walked right on by. And a Levite was as close as you could get to a priest without being a priest, okay? It was still in close to the family, but not exactly in the family of the priest. And so that was also a very uh, highly venerated person in the community, someone who was serving in the temple, someone who was helping with some of the extra work of the worship of the community. And so both of these people are people who normally anybody else on the streets of Jerusalem would come by and would respect them and honor them and give them, uh, you know, kind of that, that admonishment because of the service that they did. And Jesus very quickly says, listen, the religion, the external duties of religious activity and trying to please God in these different ways, it's going to do nothing to make your heart the type of heart that loves neighbors. The religious stuff, all the garb and all the activities and all the sacrifices and all the songs... They don't matter if your heart just stays cold. This is an affront to this lawyer who would see these men as deeply valuable people. And Jesus is saying, they're not really neighbors. 
They're not even following the second commandment. You gave me two commandments and they can't even fulfill them. And these are the people that you're supposed to be looking up to. It's a strong affront to this man in this situation. Jesus clearly says your religious activities are worthless for they do not transform the heart. And we need to hear this as well. But that's probably not the biggest hit. The biggest hit starts in verse 33, where Jesus throws out this curveball of the Samaritan. The Samaritan man comes to where the guy who was robbed was. He sees him, and he stops and has compassion on him. When you think about Samaritan, you've got to think that it's the worst type of person that this lawyer thinks exists. A Samaritan to this lawyer is basically a half-breed who isn't a pure Israelite, who doesn't worship at the right church, who doesn't follow the right laws, who doesn't have the right history of the right kings, who has nothing but evil as his pedigree, but tries to be good and follow God anyway, the, the lawyer would see the Samaritan as a scumbag. Right? There are racial issues involved. There are religious issues involved. There are geopolitical issues involved. Everything about a Samaritan to this man is gross and disgusting. So much so that look at verse 37. Jesus says, who was the neighbor? The guy says, the one. <laughs> The guy doesn't even say the Samaritan. He can't even bring his lips to say the Samaritan was the good neighbor. He says, ah, the, the guy that had mercy, the guy. He can't, even, he can't even own it, right? He can't even say there is capacity for good in a human being like that. He can't even do it because the man is such an enemy to him. The potency of this example that Jesus uses confronts everything about the self-justification in this lawyer because if this lawyer can be justified in his own actions, then it is a guarantee that the Samaritan could never be justified in his own actions. The lawyer sees himself as a rightful Jew, as a good Sunday school attending boy, as a fine upstanding citizen who votes on the right side of the ballot, spends his money in the right place, ties in the right ways, volunteers with the right organizations, has the right color skin. The Samaritan is the opposite in every way to this lawyer. And Jesus uses a Samaritan as an example of a good neighbor. He confronts the lawyer with his own self-righteousness and his dismissal of Samaritan people. The lawyer thinks, surely no Samaritan could ever be justified before God. Surely that group of people is outside of the reach of this teaching you're talking about, Jesus. The confrontation here is intense. Jesus calls this man's attention toward a person who he wouldn't even consider during the time when he's considering who is my neighbor. It's a very intentional twist of a master storyteller who knows the heart of evil in this little religious man. 
Jesus intentionally says, while the conversation of love your neighbors on the table, I'm going to talk about your enemy. Because if you cannot see your enemy as a human being, you can't even begin to fulfill the law of love your neighbor. Right? This confrontation goes deep, and it falls perfectly in line with so much of the teaching of Jesus who says, what is love of your neighbor? Love of your neighbor is the kind of love that would drive you to actually love your enemy. Right? Luke 6, 27, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. What's interesting about Jesus' parable is that he uses the Samaritan who has come upon a Jew on the road as a good example of loving enemy. <laughs> he doesn't use a Jew who falls upon a Samaritan as a good example of loving your enemy. Jesus intentionally constructs a story that humanizes and creates a hero out of someone who's an enemy to the lawyer. Okay? Now, I don't know what category you're in, and I'm actually really thankful that at this church I don't have one category to say right now. This is a good thing. I think Jesus is doing a great work. Because if we were all Republicans, then I would just simply start talking about Democrats right now, right? Or if we were all racists, then I would just simply start talking about the other skin color, right? Or if we were all nationalists, I would just start talking about those people from that other country, right? Or if we were all financial elitists, we would just talk about the poor people, okay? So thankfully, Jesus is building amongst us a diverse group of people who are all over the map, all over the map, with this stuff. It's glorious. Just a small little group all over the map, right? Some of you don't even know how much of an enemy is sitting right next to you. Like, seriously, some of you don't even know. I'm like, had conversations with that guy and that guy, and I'm like, I can never let them be in the room for a really long time because it's Jew and Samaritan, and it would go down, right? Like, it's, it's real in here, okay? So I don't know where you're at. I don't know, and I'm not going to try to villainize any of you, Okay? The central issue of this matter is something that is of utmost importance in our day because what are we doing? What are we doing in 2018? Okay? We're, we're Jews screaming at Samaritans. We're Samaritans screaming at Jews. All caps. Facebook post. Bang! Kill them all. Right? I have so, I've seen some of the most vehement dismissals of human beings in the last 90 days that I've seen ever in my entire life. I'm like, holy moly. Like, you just said this about that entire group of people, and I've got like six family members, three friends, and like 22 congregants in that group of people. Whoa. And then flip the side and do the thing the other way, and I say the same thing. I'm like, I got, this is amazing, man. I love sitting in the middle and grenades just flying over my head. I'm like, this is the safest place to be. It's so amazing. Like, everybody's just, it's crazy, right? And the whole reason this exists is because like a lawyer in Jesus' day, we're saying, I need to justify myself. There's something that's good that I am achieving that is better than what they are achieving that sets me apart as a decent human being and therefore acceptable to God. And Jesus would tell you, if you're a Republican, the Democrat came down the road and saw the man suffering 
and picked him up, took him to the inn, and paid for him. Flip the story. If you're a Democrat, Jesus would say, the Republican came down the road, saw the man suffering, picked him up, brought him to the inn, and paid for it. Friend, you have no hope of loving your neighbor until you can see your enemy as a human being, as somebody actually capable of the good that Jesus just described. Our hearts need this check, and it's a confrontation of the highest degree. What this boils down to is that Jesus is trying to help this man understand that in and of himself and his own effort, he cannot fulfill the law. He actually can't do it. And so if, if you come to Jesus, and listen, from wherever we're at, this applies. If, if you come to Jesus and you're like, okay, Jesus, I think I'm ready to be a Christian now. Really. I think really. I'm, I'm there. Like I've done enough, I've tried enough, I'm at the end, whatever. For whatever reason, I think, I think I'm ready now. I believe in you and I trust in you and I want to follow you. And here we go. Here's my nice little box of religious deeds and the rules that I'm going to really try hard to follow. Okay? Like, this is the stuff. I know, I know what I'm supposed to do. I think after kind of messing my life up enough or, or trying other things enough, I'm, I'm serious now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this right, Jesus. I'm here. I'm going to try really hard. Thanks for giving me a second chance. Your grace, that, that's cool and all, but here we go. I'm really ready to show you and the world that deep down inside I'm actually a, a really good person. And I can do this. I can really achieve this. I can, I can get out of the junk out of the way and I can really live better. If you're going to come to Jesus like this, Jesus is going to hold this glorious picture up in front of you and he's going to put before you an absolute impossible scenario. He's going to hold before you a categorically unimaginable character of human performance and he's going to stump you like he did this teacher by shattering your neat little religious box that try, and try to help you to understand that you cannot make yourself fit through your own deeds. And graciously, Jesus is going to come to you and say, Un unless you are able to reach this unimaginable level of perfection, you have no hope of getting things right between you and me on your own strength. I'm going to put before you a picture of ethic impossibilities of perfection and say to you, okay, if it's going to be you getting it right, here's the standard. It's impossible. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And let me tell you guys, the Pharisees were basically professional law keepers. If your righteousness does not exceed that of those who basically get paid to be religiously perfect, then you have no hope. That is the terribly bad news of the good news of the gospel. If it's up to you and keeping your list and making sure that you're in by your own efforts, 
you've come to the wrong religion. Go to a false one who's going to tell you all kind of neat lies about how good you really can be. Jesus refuses to tell you that junk. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. Paul, in the epistles, talks a lot about this same thing. Some people think Jesus and Paul teach different things, and it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. In Romans 10, Paul talks about the Jewish people. And he says, they try really hard to be righteous, but they completely miss the mark. Okay? Paul says this of the Jewish people in Romans 10 too, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They try really hard. <laughs> They're zealous for God. But he says, not according to knowledge. Basically, not according to the right thing. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law? What, what does that mean? It means that the measuring line for, being enter, or for entering into God's kingdom is not based on our deeds and our righteousness. It is based rather on Jesus and his deeds and his righteousness. Jesus being the end of the law means you do not have to. You can anyway, but you don't even have to perfectly justify yourself with your own actions. Because Jesus has done it. Colossians 1.21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh. He has reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Listen, through Jesus, through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death, and because of your faith in him, God presents you to himself as a good neighbor. God does a miraculous work in and through Jesus Christ to transform you into a, from a failing neighbor into a good neighbor because of faith in Jesus, not because of your deeds. Suddenly, because of Christ's work, you are completely justified and the measure for that justification isn't even you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. In all of his work on your behalf, you no longer have to seek to justify yourself like the lawyer here in Luke 10. R.C. Sproul puts it neatly. It is Jesus' own righteousness, his performance and not my performance, that is the grounds of my justification. One more passage, Romans 3, 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Listen, we'll wrap up soon, but we have to stop here. If you're in the category of a, a, a doubter or a religious skeptic or kind of like, ah, I don't know about all this, right? I don't know about this. You're not quite sure. Maybe you don't even know exactly why you're here this morning. We're, I mean, we're glad that you're here and we really want you to be welcome, but this topic of faith can often be so difficult to come to, Right? So if you're not even a follower of Jesus and you're here, like you are one of the most courageous people on the planet right now. 
especially while bombs are flying from side to side. You're willing to say, ah, what is that all about, right? A lot of times when you engage in this manner, you feel this pressure, right? This uneasiness of approach when it comes to God or church or Christians. And it almost always has something to do with whether you're going to be welcomed or not based on how you measure up or not. The nervousness of, ah, can I be myself? Do I have to learn a new lingo? Can I really be honest about the things that I've done? Can I actually talk about some of my convictions and stuff that maybe, I don't know if it's going to be accepted here. Like there can be this pressure to kind of tidy up and, and to try to understand the code for the way to do life before you feel welcome into a place like this. And the same can be true for followers of Jesus. You may experience the same tension. You may still have an embedded nervousness when the Bible is opened up or when the gospel is brought into an interaction or when Jesus just swoops into a conversation or a relationship. You can still feel that, that pressure to perform. It's very much the same thing that those who do not believe feel when they begin to investigate faith. We all face this on a regular basis. We ask this question, is who I am? Like, all the armor down, all the defenses dropped, if the authentic me, the one that comes out when I'm not concentrating, <laughs> when I'm not paying attention to all my words and all my behaviors, can that me, can, that, can, can I really find a place where I can pull off my masks and stop the charades and still be loved? Can I, can I actually find that kind of environment where I'm welcomed with all of my wrinkles and my spots and my blemishes? Can I find a home? And I'm telling you, this self-justification matter is the central issue. Because when we approach religion, we think we have things to do. Just like the lawyer. And Jesus proclaims to us, you cannot justify yourself. And he says to an entire community, none of you can justify yourself. Therefore, all of your reasons to put up the walls and reject those other kinds of people, they can come down now. They can fall. All of your reasons to hold yourself up as some kind of an ideal realization of the human reality, those can all come down. All of the defensiveness that says, no, 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 I didn't really sin. No, 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 I didn't really do that. You misunderstood the circumstances. I just, all of that comes crumbling when we see that justification is by faith in Jesus. And listen, I had this I have this ongoing conversation about the gospel with a, a self-proclaimed, non-religious, uh, kind of atheist-type person right now. And just recently, I had this awesome opportunity to challenge her and just simply say, and it was really fun, as carefully and craftily and, and as, as winsomely as possible, I tried to tell her, you mess up all the time. <laughs> it was tough, but I did it very carefully, very graciously, just, you, you don't 
you don't even meet your own standards, right? Like just gently. And for days, for days, our conversations were composed of her defensiveness of why I was wrong. For days. There was extra explanations involved. There were different scenarios put before me of defense for righteousness. She had no idea that she was contending with the Son of God, with Jesus and his confrontation of this very same lawyer situation. Even in her, she has no desire to believe in Jesus or read the Bible or follow Christianity. Even in her, there is a robust defensiveness of her own righteousness. Right? It's in all of us. And Jesus here to this lawyer and to you today says, you don't have to justify yourself. So if the Good Samaritan parable for you has been an extra law about how to be a good neighbor and you better go do that, you misunderstood the parable. That's why it's hidden to some and revealing to others. The parable was not Jesus saying, actually, this is how to be a good neighbor. You better get on with it. It was Jesus saying, actually, you're in heat. You're in trouble. You're, you're, it's not going to go well for you if you try this on your own. You cannot even fulfill the second most important law. You can't do it. So then what happens? What do we do with the law? Well, as Bob Thune said in our gospel life study, the law drives us to the gospel and the gospel frees us to obey the law. One last verse, Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So how do we begin to follow the law without needing to justify ourselves through the law? right? Here's how. We see the perfect law keeper, Jesus, and that he came for us, and that, in fact, we are the enemy. We were the enemy. We stood in direct opposition to God and his law. And what did Jesus do to respond to that war, that battle cry between us and him? He humbled himself. He came, became a man. He was fully God, and he entered human history, became fully man, humbled himself, learned, grew, struggled, faced temptation, conquered it all, lived perfectly and victoriously, and then was killed. For who? His enemy. He didn't just take you to the inn and pay for you to get some Band-Aids. He died in your place. He preempted the robber's attack and stood on the path as a vulnerable human being and was slayed by wicked humans. He died. He wasn't half dead. He was fully dead. Outside the city, on a cross, killed by Romans to take your place. To take your place. Now, being totally justified by Jesus' work, your heart can be transformed to actually want to love enemies like he loved you, his enemy. Because you're no longer enemy, you're friend. You're no longer outside, you're inside. You're no longer begging for scraps at the bottom of the table, you're sitting 
at the table with Jesus. You're not left for dead on the side of the road. You're lifted and resurrected because of his work for you. And a whole new life is before you that he wants to live out through you so that you can begin to love neighbors like he loved neighbors and disarm your enemies like he disarmed you with love and service because you don't have to do it on your own anymore. You don't have to perform. Jesus performed for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we so desperately long for freedom from the desire to justify ourselves. And God, this, this embedded need is so deep in us, it, it, it corrupts almost every interaction we have with human beings. The way we gauge people, the way we measure, the way we calculate whether we can actually be there for them or risk something for a relationship or, or pursue them on, on the outside of our camp. All of these interactions with human beings are, are so stained by our desire to justify ourselves. We need this gracious yet strong confrontation from the gospel that says, basically, you're hopeless in your own deeds, in your own righteousness. So God, by your spirit, may you help us look to the one who has justified us through his life and through his death. It is truly our only hope for salvation and it is also truly our only hope to actually create some kind of community where we can get along with enemies, where we can love people that are different, where we can pursue and engage with those from different places than we are from, with different histories and stories and backgrounds and educations different amounts of money and living on different sides of the street and voting for different people. We can actually be a community of neighbor love here where we even find ourselves friends with someone who would have previously been an enemy. God, what a display of your glory for St. Pete would that be. Do it here, we pray. We know it's not going to be easy. We know there's going to be some really awkward stuff and maybe even some unforgiveness that has to get mulled over and then taken care of, God. But we're here and we're in it. Make us these kind of people. The world is dying for some people like this. Make us real neighbor love. Give us real neighbor love that we could even love our enemies. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.